www.kcpe.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. You may be a first-time listener, and so let me just orient you. For the next hour, we will be taking people's questions via telephone, text, uh, email, however you'd like to send it to us. Uh, you, there may be an issue you're facing in your life or a passage of Scripture you're uh, struggling with in terms of its meaning or application. That's why we're here, and by God's grace, we'll do the best that we can do to help you. Again, the number locally is the 843 exchange. It's 525-1859. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. People email us here, too, into the studio, and the email address is the call letters, W-A-G-P, W-A-G-P. Um, Dot net. And so that will get you through and will pop up on the screen in front of us and uh, we'll be happy to take your questions. So let's go ahead and get started, Rick. We have a number of questions, Pastor, and this one was from a couple of weeks ago. We didn't have time to answer it then, but the caller wanted to know about Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Christ says, do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. How do we as Christians live by these words when we see so much evil taking place even among Christians? And how does this apply to uh, church discipline where we are definitely judging? Well, it's a great question. And I think it's a, uh, there's a false belief that a lot of people have as to what it means to judge and what it does not mean to judge. Uh, the Lord, of course, says in John seven twenty four that we are to judge with righteous judgment. In fact, even the immediate context, you're quoting, of course, from the Sermon on the Mount, do not judge so that you will not be judged from the way you judge. You will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the law out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Of course, the broader context of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I suppose the key verse in the whole sermon is, For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Christ calls us to have a higher righteousness than that of the Pharisees. And, of course, in that scathing address that he gave in the last week of his public ministry in Matthew 23, he gave that series of woes. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And, of course, um, the repeated word throughout the sermon is hypocrite. The scribes and the Pharisees were known as play actors. That's literally what the word a hypocrite means, it's two Greek words brought together, it means a play actor. And so they were going around picking at other people when they were not addressing their own heart issue. 
But with that said, you know, so so it's important that, you know, before we say, oh, look at that adulterer over there and we're committing adultery in our heart or look at that murderer over there. But we hate our brother so as to be a murderer. And so they, of course, uh, took a sense of had a sense of false peace in the externals that they could uh, claim. But the internal issues of the heart were just wrong. And so Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. Uh, but inside they were like dead men's bones. Um, but with that said, again, some people think that if you speak against sin, uh, for instance, I was sitting on an airplane yesterday flying from Dallas to Charleston and engaged a man in conversation, and he was asking me about homosexuality. He says, well, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to judge people. Uh, we are talking about the, um, the, to put it in the context, we were talking about the atmosphere in the country and he was saying it just seems like you know everything is changing so fast and this man was a christian i asked him the diagnostic questions and he he knew christ as his personal savior but it was obvious he was a very young christian hadn't grown very much in his walk with christ by the nature of some of the questions he was asking me and of course uh, i said well you know what we're seeing is what god actually prophesied would happen the perilous times that would come at the end of the age that it would be comparable to the days of noah and the days of lot and we we're talking about the days of lot days of you know gross uh, perversion homosexuality jesus said that will be the atmosphere prior to the second coming of his son from heaven that's that's what he says and so he said well you know i don't want to judge or anything but you know, what do you think about this homosexual thing? I said, well, let me first say you're not judging when you say that homosexuality is wrong. Well, and then he quoted this verse. He said, but doesn't the Bible say judge not lest you be judged? And that's what people do all the time is they take this verse to say that you cannot speak against things that are wrong against sin. And it's not speaking about that. The context that Jesus is dealing with are people who... Uh, were basically picking out sins in other people's lives, but they were not judging the sin in their own life. But again, there is a place for judgment. In fact, he goes on to say, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearl before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So right there, Jesus tells us that there is a judgment that takes place where you discern that a person is, quote-unquote, a dog, and that's a sermon in itself. You determine that a person is like a pig and that he has no heart for the things of God, and and God says you need to be discerning. With, you withhold the gospel pearl, lest it be trampled underfoot in the, men, that, in the mud. That's a judgment that you make. So I went on to tell this um, brother, I said, look, I said, you're not judging a couple who is living in adultery. And I said, let's just back it up. And I said, I I had someone at our Meet the Pastor meeting, and I'm just so thankful that God keeps bringing unbelievers to our church, and he gives us opportunities. And usually after Meet the Pastor, sometimes I'll dialogue with uh, people individually. And I said, well, I noticed um, that you guys had two last names, but uh, you had the same address. I said, are you just going by your maiden name or are, are you guys living together? And they said, well, we're, we're living together. And of course, I, I told them, I said, well, look, if, if you truly received Christ tonight as your Savior, then the Bible teaches that, um, you know, that's going to change. And I said, I could not receive you into the membership of our church 
unless you were, you know, willing to change that area. And I said, and that would be evidence of conversion that you really came to know Christ as your Savior. But when I pointed out that adultery was wrong, was I judging them? No, that's a judgment God has made. And then I went on to say to him, I said, look, I said, when you say that homosexuality is sin, that's not a judgment you are making. That's a judgment God is making. One of the things that just kind of struck me in being in Dallas over the weekend is just everywhere you went, uh, every store you went, uh, right down to the Shake Shack, uh, where they had some multicolored shake in order in honor of Gay Pride Month. And we went into a mall on Saturday to buy something for our new granddaughter. And, you know, every store, it was Gay Pride. It was this, it was that. We proudly endorse this month. Hey, listen, when a nation endorses what God calls an abomination, when that becomes the spirit of the nation, we are in deep trouble. We are just inviting uh, God's hand of protection to leave the United States of America and for him to allow more and more judgment upon us as a people. So you're not judging when you speak against sin. And so the second half of your question is, what about church discipline? Well, I think, again, it's interesting when Paul speaks of church discipline in the book of Galatians, he makes this statement, because the Bible does teach church discipline. If your brother sins, reprove him in quiet. You don't go and, hey, do you know what so-and-so is doing? No, it's just between you and God. Uh, If he doesn't listen, take two or three. If he doesn't listen, take it to the church. So the Bible teaches church discipline. And it's not to be done by just anyone as it moves through the stages. I think it's a role of the leaders in the church. And so Paul says in Galatians, brethren, even if if anyone is caught up in any trespass, you who are spiritual, and he's speaking here of uh, a word that speaks of spiritual mature, spiritually mature people, uh, every born-again person in the loosest sense is spiritual and that he's been born from above, but not everyone is a uh, mature Christian. And by mature, I don't mean having arrived, but a grown-up and a growing relationship with Christ. So if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. That's your goal, restoration. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. So, one, there's an assumption that this person's heart is clear and clean. Uh, They are spiritual, that they're not engaged in the same sin they're going to discipline, and there's an admonition that they go with a spirit of gentleness and a spirit of caution, that if they go thinking, well, I could never do this, but by the grace of God, there go I. If they think I could never pull this off, I could never engage myself in this sin, then they're really tempting the devil to tempt them. So you're looking out to yourself so that you will not be tempted. So again, the fact that you are exercising church discipline is you are agreeing with a judgment that God has made. So judge not lest you be judged. It's a verse that is taken grossly out of context. And so today, if you speak against something like homosexuality, oh, you know, he's homophobic. No, you're just saying what God said. You are teaching what God said, and you're supposed to do that. Uh, that's We are to agree where God um, has given his statement. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. 
You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, gentlemen. My question is concerning First Peter, where it says about the those who be scarcely saved, and some people make they, they refer to that as they're barely going to make it into heaven or by the skin and the teeth. And also another verse I got a question about where it says that we're kept by God's power. Is that referring to keeping our power from preventing from sinning or kept by God's power of of our salvation? Well, it's a fair question. Um, Let let me just turn there for a second in 1 Peter 4. And I've preached through the whole book of 1 Peter, so you might find it helpful just to um, even listen to that message um, but none, nonetheless, uh, he, he's dealing here with uh, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And so just to put it in context, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And so the book of 1 Peter deals at least with two kinds of suffering. There are three kinds that are described in the Bible. There's what we might call common suffering, and that's the kind of suffering that everyone experiences just because we are in a fallen world. Christians and non-Christians alike, for instance, can get cancer, can have heart attacks, can um, you know experience things because we live in a fallen world. I was in Dallas over the weekend, and a storm, a thunderstorm blew up with 70-mile-an-hour winds. And uh, in in Dallas itself, this large crane blew over, and it crashed through an apartment complex, and it killed a lady. That's what we would call common suffering, just because we live in a fallen world. There will be no hurricanes or tornadoes or vicious uh, weather in the uh, coming millennial kingdom, much less in the new heaven and the new earth. Then there's what we call Christian suffering, and there's carnal suffering. He's already addressed carnal suffering. That's the kind of suffering that we bring on ourselves because of our own sin. Here he's dealing with Christian suffering. So don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes upon you. If you are reviled, he'll say in the next verse, for the name of Christ, you're blessed. And that's what Jesus taught. Uh, Blessed are you when men say all sorts of evil against you falsely on account of me. Great is your reward in heaven. Um, So when we are um, persecuted for his name's sake, not for being obnoxious, but for the sake of righteousness, for living a holy life, as Matthew 5 affirms, uh, we're blessed because it's a reflection of Christ in us. And if they hated him, they'll hate us. If they persecuted the master, they'll persecute the servant, as he said in John 15. Then, of course, he says, make sure none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. That's a carnal suffering again. Um, but he'll pick it up in verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but he's to glorify God in, in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? So when you put that verse in its context, it really pops and comes alive. It's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, not in the sense that, you know, God's just, you know, really trying to hold on to us and keep us from losing our salvation. And um, the, he's talking here about the process that a believer goes through that a believer who walks and lives for Christ 
is going to have a difficult life at times. He's going to be persecuted. He's going to be mocked. And of course, in this nation, in the United States, we have been blessed historically, but it's changing so rapidly because we had such a deep-rooted Judeo-Christian ethic. We experienced a certain freedom and a certain affirmation, even from an unbelieving world, because they were so salted uh, by our saltiness and lighted by the light of the world, which is the church, the body of Christ. But now the church is becoming more like the world. Our light is diminishing. Because of that, it's giving evil a permission to spread such that those who really are salty and those who are light are increasingly being mocked and persecuted and made fun of. And that is happening in the day in which we live. So if you take a position on anything, um, you are seen as the bad guy and your name will be mocked. And in some cases in the world, you uh, will experience physical persecution. And of course, Peter is writing uh, right around the time of the Neronian persecutions. Nero was the emperor when he writes first and second Peter. He was a hateful man. Christians were suffering deep persecution. In fact, he is going to um, blame uh, what he did. He's going to burn the slums of Rome because Nero liked, according to Justin Martyr, liked everything to look beautiful. And so he didn't like the way the slums of Rome looked, and so he burned them. And there was an uprising by the people accusing Nero of having started the fire. And he turned it around and said, I didn't do it. The Christians did it. You know, these people who like to call fire down from heaven. And then to affirm his own evil, he took Christians and literally dipped dipped them in oil and made them human torches to light his gardens. Um, It is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. Not that God is struggling to secure our salvation. But as we, you know, the word saved is obviously a big word. We've been saved from the eternal penalty of sin. We call that justification. Someday we will be saved from the very presence of sin. We call that glorification. But right now we are being saved from the power of sin as we learn to walk with God. And it's with great difficulty. And we call this process sanctification. And his point is, is that, look, if it's difficult for the righteous um, to get through this life, <laughs> what's going to happen to the godless man, to the total unbeliever? He is going to meet God in judgment. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God, this is part of God's plan for our life. Oh, Joel Osteen, don't talk about this. You ever stand up, Joel, on a Sunday morning and say, it is God's will for you to suffer. No, he's Mr. Positive. He, he, he's created a God in his own image. Uh, therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God, because there are some who suffer not according to the will of God, even sometimes Christians. And he just highlighted some reasons why in verse 15. What are we to do? We are to entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So again, context is everything when we look at a verse, and that's just a short answer. I have an hour-long sermon. If you might want to download the Search the Scriptures app and type in First Peter, and it will show you every message I preached on First Peter, and uh, it might be helpful to you to listen to that message. Let's go to the next question. They're stacking up here. Indeed they are. We've got another live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. 
morning. I have a sort of two-part question. I know the SBC is going on right now, and and I, I don't mean to be controversial with this question, but I just just kind of wondering what's going on and what's your opinion as to why someone like Beth Moore, who openly violates scripture and almost arrogantly does so, is just not called out by anyone within the SBC anymore. And she talks about how she wants to still be a part of it and kind of all this stuff. And I'm not a Southern Baptist, so I'm not too aware of what's going on, but what is your opinion on that? Because I think of if there was anyone else with any other sin that was so openly flaunted the way she does, I, there would be people willing to call it out. I, am I missing something? I'm just no. You're not missing anything at all. You're not missing anything at all. And I've had people get mad at me why we don't use Beth Moore Bible studies. But when she first started producing her Bible studies twenty years ago, and someone asked me to review one. The one I reviewed at the time, it was a Bible study on tab- the tabernacle. It was filled with error. I thought, who is this woman? Why is Lifeway Books putting her on the press when that that was, I think, maybe her very first Bible study. Maybe she's updated, but it was just filled with error. I thought, this isn't even close. This woman doesn't even handle the scriptures accurately. I said, no, we're not using Beth Moore. And then, of course, it became clear that she was egalitarian. Now, she calls herself a soft complementarian. Let me define some terms here. There are two critical uh, terms that we use in the realm of theology. One is egalitarianism. The other is complementarianism. Egalitarianism says that men and women are equal, not only in their stature and their salvation blessings from God, but in the roles that they can play. So uh, a woman can be just as much the head of the home as a man can be. you got to really manipulate some Scripture to come to that. Um, uh, a woman can be a pastor in a church just as much as a man can be. That's egalitarianism, where roles can be identical. Uh, then there is what we call complementarianism, and complementarianism historically referred to those who acknowledge that men and women are equal in their stature before God and the salvation blessings that we equally receive, that we're co-heirs with Christ, as Peter will remind husbands and wives, but that we have different roles to play uh, in the church and in the home. And so that was the traditional definition. So Beth Moore has somewhat, I think, craftily come up with the term, along with some other Christian feminist women, Uh, soft complementarian. And basically they say, well, we admit that a woman can't be a pastor. I'm not sure how long she's going to stick to that because she keeps sliding down the hill and changing her theology as she moves along. But she right now is saying, we admit that a woman can't be a pastor, but she can preach on a Sunday morning just like any other woman. And so now there's a new brashness and boldness and an open publicity every time she preaches on a Sunday morning as she did last Sunday. And that is really bad. That is really bad. And we've got guys like J.D. Greer, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And again, these guys like to be liked. They just like to be liked. I've lost my respect for J.D. Greer. And so he's now a soft complementarian. Because certainly you you, you don't want to take an issue, you don't want to take a stance on this issue, 
because you'll ostracize some people who are being shaped more by the culture than they are by Scripture, and they won't come to your church. And you might drop from 10,000 to 8,000 in a week if you preached a sermon that actually had the truth in it. So if you like to be liked, you're going to lose constituents, you're going to lose finances, you might cut away your salary, and that that's just, look, those who teach the Word of God will face a stricter judgment. That's why he exhorts us, let not many to become teachers. There is a, there's a stewardship in that. Bottom line, Beth Moore is a flirt. She is a flirt, and she has basically bamboozled these guys, and so many of them, I just think she's a flirt. And with that said, they're caving into her. The disrespectful things, the incredible disrespectful comments that she makes about men of God is absolutely appalling to me. Uh, There's a young man, uh, I say young, he's in his 30s now, and uh, Owen Strack, and um, I I met Owen six or seven years ago when my son-in-law was studying at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's now a professor at Midwestern Baptist. He's doing a tremendous job, and he's not afraid to stand up and to say, hey, look, we're moving in the wrong direction. So I think what you'll see next is um, it, not this year's convention, but probably next year's convention when there's an opportunity again, is that you know people are going to suggest Beth Moore be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. It's a clear violation of 1 Timothy 2. It doesn't simply apply to the local church. It applies very clearly to the roles that God has given men and women and so he couldn't have said it any more plainly than he did. He said, I will not have a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. I will not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. That's what God said. And what Beth Moore, unfortunately, is doing in her soft complementarianism is she's not really encouraging women to rise up to the high and holy calling that they do have. And so we diminish, you know, sometimes, oh, a woman can't do this, but let's talk about what a woman can do and what she can do and what God has uniquely gifted her to do as it, as it relates to the raising and nurturing of children. So even her own daughter, you know, I mean, some of the things her, her, her daughter's, uh, I mean, she's more liberal than Beth Morris. So you're not missing a thing. The largest evangelical... Um, Protestant denomination is under attack from the evil one. And I'm afraid that we don't have some guys who will stand up. And uh, Russell Moore, not Al Moeller, but Russell Moore is, um, I think, kowtowing to Beth Moore. And uh, he's fueling the whole fire with it. And uh, we're, we're headed for deep trouble. And I say we because this is part of the body of Christ. I pastor a non-denominational church, but this is part of the body of Christ. And Beth Moore and some other women need to be uh, called, you know, into accountability. When Beth Moore, you know, um, you know, says, well, we have our differences and we just need to get along. When Rachel Held Evans is in the hospital and 
uh, a woman who was supposed to have a conference just a few weeks after her death. She died. Um, but she was to have a conference where she was going to have two gay men preaching and uh, a woman, uh, United Methodist, pa- not United Methodist, a Lutheran pastor who likes to get up and talk about her sexual exploit, you know, ex- exploitation, exploitations. Thank you, Rick. Uh, since she divorced her husband, um, you know, that that's bad. Beth Moore should have said, you know, Rachel Held Evans has been living in disobedience. And if she is a Christian, she's no doubt under the discipline of Almighty God. And here was a, a young woman who was influencing millions of young millennials. She has a blog or had a blog that, you know, and I feel sad for her children uh, who are left behind without a mother. But this young woman in her 30s was not having a ministry for good, but for evil, but for Beth Moore to, uh, you know, not speak the truth and to kowtow to, you know, th- this woman, that, that that's evil. That's just evil. Uh, so anyway, I appreciate the question. Was there a second question you had, caller? Well, I guess a quick follow-up on that is, do you think when you talk about the other people who don't want to say anything, do you think it stems from, like you said, a desire to be liked, or is there something more? Because can, when I think mm, of, like, you, John MacArthur, Bodie Bauckham, like it's just another level of just biblical backbone that I hear that a lot of them don't have. Is that? Do you think that's the primary issue? They just well, I, I think that is certainly a major factor, but not the only factor. Uh, there, there are some people who um, I'd say... Uh, He's a third degree. He's a third generation heretic. I would say that of Andy Stanley. I'd say he's the third generation heretic. What do I mean by that? Do I mean that uh, he is a total unbeliever? No. Um, as best I can tell, Andy Stanley is a Christian. I may find out later on that that was not the case. And sometimes, again, time is the best test. Because if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But the fact that they went out from us shows that they were not really of us to begin with. But some of the teachings that he is producing in the second, certainly in the third generation, he's going to produce sheer heretics. That's going to be the fruit of his ministry. Now, what drives that? I think sometimes to like to be liked, sometimes it's just ignorance. Some of these guys just are not studied in God's Word. And they have such a loose view of Scripture you know, when I when I sit next to this guy on the airplane yesterday, I think, well, what is your pastor teaching you? That, that's what's running through my mind. What is your pastor teaching you for you to ask me as a believer, and I had no doubt he was a believer, what is your pastor teaching you for you to question uh, a Christian speaking out against homosexuality as judging someone? That that's That's not good. That's not good. That just tells me he's untaught. And a lot of people, a lot of God's people are untaught because the pastors are unprepared and they have not really taken their role to dedicate themselves to prayer, the study of the Word, and to evangelism. And they've just lost their edge. And they're producing um, sometimes believers, but just baby Christians who can't move out of maturity. Uh, But I think within that realm— there are just false teachers. Listen, when the devil comes, he comes as an angel of light. And so he doesn't come, you know, in a 
uh, red suit with a pitchfork and, you know, cloven hoofs and horns coming out of his head. He comes like a holy angel. And if he does, Paul tells us, so don't his servants, so don't his pastors, so don't his ministers. And again, I think what we'll see with time, because we know, again, when you put all the pieces of the puzzle together, there's so much that is happening in the world. God predicted in the latter days, Israel would become a nation. They did in 1948, and that opened wide the eyes of men who had been teaching that for decades before, because they said, God said it was going to happen. But of course, at the time, there was only 600,000 Jews in the whole nation of Israel. Now there's six and a half million. God says in the latter times, at the, not, not just in the last days, but in the latter times, the term last days in the New Testament begins on the day of Pentecost. It can in the Old Testament refer to the end of time, but the term latter days always refers to that final segment in human history before the Messiah returns a second time. And God predicts by the prophet Ezekiel that God would gather the Jewish people from around the world. There's Jews now from over 100 nations that are in Israel. And it's not by accident. There's only 12 and a half million Jews in the world, and six and a half million of them are now in the land of Israel. God said that would happen at the end of time. It would not be 100% of the Jews, because at the end of the tribulation, he's going to gather the Jewish elect from across the worlds and bring them into Israel. But there's going to be a big enough portion where Israel is become, going to become the center focus of the world. When you put that together with the days of Noah— days of moral impropriety, the days of Lot, days of homosexuality, and the coming apostasy. There's always been apostasy, but there's coming an apostasy of apostasies. It's articular in Second Thessalonians 2, the apostasy. And I believe the seeds are being sown for the coming apostasy that is going to come across the planet. And um, some of it is being done by false teachers, and that, of course, is what the book of Jude, among other things, uh, addresses, and that, that little short letter of Jude, I think I preached 21 sermons once in the book of Jude. It, it, it took me a while to get through it, but he speaks of people who come in unaware, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, crept in where? Crept into the church, into the body of Christ, unnoticed, who were long beforehand marked out, marked out for condemnation. And so, um, and they turn the grace of God into licentiousness. And in the process, they deny our only master and savior, Jesus Christ. And so if unbelieving false teachers can enter into the church, then we should have our antennas up and we should have some kind of a litmus test. And when you have weak pastors who like to be liked or who are just ignorant of the scriptures and it's their own fault and they've neglected a high and holy role, then um, we're going to see the kinds of things that we see happening. I mean, I can't believe we don't have more men standing up against Beth Moore and her whole feminist thing and why we have these Southern Baptist churches blindly receiving her literature. Hey, listen, Rachel Held Evans used to be a major seller on Lifeway books. Finally, Lifeway had to take her down because of her endorsement of gay marriage and other things. Well, maybe they're going to take down Beth Moore, but let's not touch Beth Moore because she makes us millions of dollars. And if we lose Beth Moore on Lifeway books, the Southern Baptist Press, we don't want to lose millions of dollars. So there's a lot of things that drive this ship.
Anyway, appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's By the Line, and uh, we had another person that uh, had a question about Bob Goff. Uh, She writes, I've never heard of him, and suddenly it seems like his name is everywhere. I'm always a little cautious of new names until I know where they stand. What are your thoughts on his theology and ministry? Bob Goff. I don't really know enough about him to uh, really respond, so um, I I would have to do some research on him. But, Rick, if you want to ask me that, I'll see what I can find on the theology of Bob Bob Goff. And, again, I I don't go by what people say. I go by what he writes. So I'd have to see it firsthand because sometimes people say things about people that are inaccurate or just removed from the context in which they were originally stated. But if I can find some uh, sound information on him, then I'll, I'll try to respond in our next Tuesday's Bible line. All right. Sounds good. Our next listener would like you to explain the difference between karma and reaping and sowing. One is obviously not from the Bible, but this caller would like to know how to answer this question in secular settings. Well, you know, the Bible says that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so it's not just a wholesale uh, expression of, uh, you know, destiny or fate comes as a certain, you know, it's all going to work out kind of karma, which is one expression of karma. The word's used in different things, but it's often used to, uh, you know, describe an effect from a cause or whatever. Well, God doesn't cause all things to work together for good to everyone, but to A, those who love God and those who are called And it looks like a verb, um, but actually the King James is most precise here because it's a noun to those who are the called according to his purpose. So he's speaking about the called. Who are the called of God? Those who are believers, those who have received Jesus as Lord. And so God tells us that, A, he's working everything together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And uh, the fact is, is that I mean, karma is true in the sense that there can be a cause and effect, even for the unbeliever, and that you reap what you sow. But I wouldn't use that term because, again, uh, its origins are not healthy. Uh, We don't um, ascribe to the 12 laws of karma. Uh, We don't speak about good karma and bad karma. We speak about a God who is sovereign, who reigns in the universe, who is over all things. And God has placed certain laws into the universe, and he's placed the laws of reaping, of sowing and reaping. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. And, of course, the thing about sowing seed is that when you sow bad seed, that is when you sin willfully against God, it may look like you're getting away with it. But the fact is is that we always reap later than we sow. When you put a seed in the ground, you can't come out a half an hour later and say, I put that tomato seed in, where's my tomato? It, it takes some time for the tomato seed to sprout and to ultimately produce the fruit. So we always sow later than we sow. We always sow like we sow. So if you reap, if you sow sensuality, you're going to reap sensuality. You sit around and you watch uh, movies that are compromised. And, uh, you know, there is supposedly at the height of 
um, this thing called Games of Thrones, a hundred million people either watching it on TV or later live streaming it weekly. That's that's incredible to me because it is the most graphic living porn that has ever been put on television. And Hell's Box Office, HBO, doesn't really care um, because, again, Satan is the one who's working behind it. How do I know? Because that's what Ephesians 2 tells me. The prince of the power of the air is energizing the sons of disobedience. And so very often what Satan does is he has one servant who follows after the things of evil, and he uh, gets him to produce a movie or a series of movies or a television show that is evil. Look, if you fill your mind with that, And then the next thing you know is you're in bed with someone you're not married to. You've reaped what you've sown. You may think you're getting away with it, but you're not. It affects your thought life. It affects your physical life. So you reap what you sow. You reap like you sow, and you always reap more than you sow. Uh, One seed for a tomato plant produces a stem that might produce 10 tomatoes on the stalk. And so God is giving us a warning, and it's not karma. It, just as there are certain physical laws that govern the physical universe, so there are spiritual laws that govern your relationship with the Lord. And some of those spiritual laws uh, apply to the unbeliever and that he's not exempt. Uh, there are certain promises that we have in terms of God working all things together for good that applies to the Christian But then there are other spiritual laws that apply to the unbelieving world as well. And to call it karma or some force or some Hindu term is really to dismiss the authority of God's Word in His sovereignty as a holy and just God. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Anna from Bluffton writes, In the beginning of John, where Jesus turns the water into wine... Uh, how are we to interpret this? I am for abstinence from alcohol now, and I want him. I want to be sure I'm understanding this passage in its entirety. When the master of the banquet says everyone brings out their choice or best wine first and cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, it leads one to believe that Jesus, in a sense, had a hand in contributing to the drunkenness. It sounds terrible for me to even write that, but I just wanted some clarification, maybe on the cultural context of this specific miracle, and thank you for your ministry. Well, uh, it's a great question you're asking, and it's an important question. Uh, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor, the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. There are approximately 250 English translations, and if this is something that you would like to study, you might want to take my course in bibliology. It's certainly not for the faint-hearted because there's over 500 pages in the course, but you will really learn, one, how we got our Bible. In one section, it's section six of the course, I do an evaluation of English translations, and not all English translations are created equal. God did inspire the original Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic scriptures. He didn't inspire every English translation. Now, I think God certainly has had his hand behind those, but not everyone, and we would all have to agree to that to some extent. Take the New World Translation that the Jehovah's Witness produced. It denies the deity of Christ. They tried to systematically go through that um, 
through their through the English Bible, and they created their own Bible. And from the best we can tell, though they've never revealed the names of the translators, I think it's obvious that the people who changed uh, the wording of a number of verses were untaught. They were twisting the scriptures, if I might quote the Apostle Peter, to their own destruction. Um, so we would have to admit that there are some translations that are less than faithful when it comes to God's Word. Um, so let me uh, just comment on this verse, because um, here it tells us, if you remember, the this is the first miracle of Christ, and uh, the master of the banquet, of course, didn't know where the wine had come from as he tasted it, but he certainly recognized the quality of it. Um, and let me just say parenthetically, the servants did know, uh, but the head waiter, uh, the master of the banquet, didn't know. And what you discover very often is that when you're walking with God and serving God and obeying God and you're one of his servants, you're on an inside track, not in terms of extra revelation, but as you obey God, John fourteen twenty one tells us that he discloses himself to you. Well, in either case, um, back to the point here is people typically serve the best food and the best drink at the beginning of the feast. And understand, this is a marriage banquet, and so this was not like a three-hour affair. The Jewish marriage banquet usually lasted a week long. And in the end, if you start running low, we do this today, well, you're serving roast beef sandwiches, and more people showed up than you thought, or, um, you know, people were eating more than you thought, and so after all the roast beef is gone, you pull out the bologna. Uh, you know, when the guests arrive, you, you serve the Coca-Cola and the Dr. Pepper, but when you run out of that, you you pull out, you know, Dr. Wiz and check cola that your kids enjoy. And so the head waiter, when he tasted the wine that Jesus made, it was so superior in flavor to anything they had had, he, he, he calls the bridegroom and he questions him on it. And, um, and again, this is a, a verse that is so grossly abused, even by Christians, but certainly by unbelievers to justify drinking. In fact, there are three verses I often say in the sinner's Bible, God helps those who help themselves, judge not lest you be judged. We've already heard that one this morning, and Jesus made wine. And they argue that basically what was happening here is that people were getting kind of buzzed, and now this superior wine comes out. And it is so superior, they're scratching their head. You know, normally you serve the best stuff first. But when people are so drunk and buzzed and high, then why would you serve the best stuff last? Because by then it doesn't make any difference, and they usually can't tell the difference. Well, let me just say that interpretation is blasphemous in my view, and you quoted here the New International Version. And unfortunately, the NIV... Uh, was not done entirely by inerrantists and by people who knew Christ as their Savior. Now, it is true that the Greek verb that is translated to have drunk freely, methusko, can refer to made drunk. In other words, it can refer to intoxication, or it can refer to simply you've drunk freely or you've drunk well. You know, if I come to your house and, man, you've got great coffee and I'm drinking your coffee. I've already had three cups. I said, look, I don't want any more. Thank you. I've drunk freely. Uh, I've drunk well. Um, I don't want any more, but thank you. You're so kind to offer. 
So it can be used in that context as well. And there are cases where the word in the Septuagint, in the book of Jeremiah, I can't remember the chapter and verse offhand, but if you listen to my sermon on the book of John, I'm sure I'll probably reference it. Um, But in Jeremiah, I think it's in the 31st chapter, the same chapter as the New Covenant. Um, It's used there of someone who has been full or satisfied. And so to say, well, Jesus was involved in making people drunk, and now he's going to make them drunker, is just utter blasphemy. And so out of the 250 English translations, I only know of two. And you've quoted here from the New International Version where it is referenced they have become drunk. And so what then they are saying is these people are high, and Jesus is going to make them higher. And that's just uh, blasphemy. It's saying that Jesus is leading people into sin, and, and, th- and that's evil. The point is, is that when people have been full or satisfied with the best, it's okay to serve the poor. It's not a big deal to pull out the bologna sandwiches and the check cola when you've treated your guests with the highest level of quality. And, and the focus really here is not on the kind of wine, but the quality of the flavor. Uh, but let me just say, Jesus was never engaged in make, making people drunk. In fact, um, if you think about it for just a moment, where did fermentation come from? Fermentation came as a result of the fall. It came as a result of the fall. Prior to the fall, if you had grapes and you squeezed the juice, it would be wine. It would be fresh grape juice, which can refer to freshly squeezed grape juice before it fermented. But after the fall, rot and decay, which is the nature of a fermented product, entered into the world. Romans 8 tells us that, and the book of Genesis illustrates it beginning in the third chapter. And so to me, if Jesus is going to do a miracle, he's not going to have any taint of the fall in it. So you can't convince me that he was helping to make people drunk or that they were just so buzzed at this point that um, he made more to get them drunker. That, that's just blasphemous. Now, again, you know, Christians today, they want to drink, and uh, it's the cool thing to do, and pastors drink, and uh, sometimes they don't publicize it, but they do it in private, and, and they, they want to guard, you know, against the weaker brother who would be like someone like me who's going to argue for abstinence. I'm going to argue for abstinence not on the basis of ignorance, but on the basis of biblical scholarship. And you might want to go to my website at searchthescriptures.org, and there's an article by Robert Stein, like a beer stein, Robert Stein. And he was a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, he was a fine, godly man, graduated before Princeton had totally gone over the edge. Uh, he's like around 90 now, unless he's gone home to be with the Lord. Uh, but he wrote an excellent article called Wine Drinking in the New Testament. It's very well done, and it basically deals with some of these issues. Um, Christians today who are drinking, you know, whiskey and vodka and all these other things, they're living in such deep sin. And then those Christians who are drinking fermented wine, they are drinking strong drink, which God forbids in his word. And again, the argument for them to show otherwise from the original historical context and what was meant by strong drink, it's on them. It's not on me. It's on them. 
they have to um, prove otherwise from Scripture, which I think they'll have great difficulty doing. So, All right, very good. 843-525-1859. We've got about three minutes left. And Emily from Crestview, Florida writes, Hello, Dr. Brogy. So a coworker of mine asked me this question. Why did God choose to send Jesus down as a Jew? My answer was because of the promise he made to Abraham, and Israel was and is God's chosen people. And he said that was not the correct answer. Am I feeling a little, and I'm feeling a little confused, so I thought I could bring it to you. Well, it's a good question. Uh, The Jewish people are God's chosen nation. Why did he start this nation? Why did he choose Israel? I've just turned to Deuteronomy 7. It says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out, namely out of Egypt, contextually with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, the the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is faithful, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. So God chooses the nation of Israel to be his people because he has to bring the Messiah through some nation. You have to be able to discern and to know, is this person the Messiah of the world? And God didn't want it to be left to guesswork. Well, he looks like a Messiah. No, God gave a prophetic plan by which you could know who the Messiah would be. And so think about this for a second. There was a time when there were no Jews in the world. Who is the first Jew? A Gentile by the name of Abram, who God later names Abraham. He was a Gentile originally. Remember, Noah was a Gentile. Um, Adam was a Gentile. Everybody was a Gentile and that they were of the nations of the world. But there comes a dividing line at some point where God speaks of Jews and Gentiles. And so he starts a new nation with Abraham by calling him, setting him apart, and they marry within a certain line of people, and they can't marry outside of that line. And there's a covenant that God makes where he says, Abraham, through your offspring, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And so in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, he restates the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 17, he gives the sign of the covenant. And, and God, what is he doing? He is creating a people who, by the way, were to be a... Um, uh, a, a witness to the Gentile peoples of the world, but they become his spokespeople that he uses, and he narrows the focus. Ah, oh, the Messiah is going to be a Jew. Uh, not only is he going to be a Jew out of the 12 tribes, he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. Oh, not only is he going to come from the tribe of Judah, he's going to be of the family of David. He's going to be born of a virgin. What is God doing? He's narrowing the scope so that we could identify who the true Messiah was and is, and it's namely the Lord Jesus. Wish I had more time for that question. It's a great question. Appreciate you asking it. Thanks for joining us today here at Search the Scriptures as we are here for the Bible Line. 